Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. Well, thank you for coming. Let's begin tonight as we continue our class on the Spirit-Filled Life. This is part three, so I want to review with you just a little bit as we look at the notes tonight, and that'll give us a little bit of a glimpse. If you missed some of part one or part two, these classes are on the uh, podcast so that you can listen to them and catch up. But in, uh, in week one, we began by defining what is it that we're really talking about when we talk about the Spirit-filled life. The definition that I'm working with that I gave to you is this. It is the life of God, or in parentheses I put Jesus Christ, the life of Christ, that we mystically and mysteriously participate in. The idea being that There is more to living the human life than just living it on our own power. We somehow mysteriously participate in the divine life of God. The great apostle Peter tells us this in his epistles when he says that we may become partakers of the divine nature. So we're going to get deeper as we go each week in what it looks like to actually be filled with the Spirit. The first couple of weeks we talked about, well, is this a life that we live individually or is it a life we live corporately? And the answer was both. We are spirit-filled individually, yes, but we also become spirit-filled as a corporation, a corporate body, if you will, the church, the body of Christ. Uh, We looked at the early few chapters of the book of Acts and we saw three identifying characteristics of the spirit-filled life. The early disciples lived in awe. It said that they often lived in awe of the awesome power that God was doing in the church. It says that they lived in unity. So in the spirit-filled life, there's a bond of unity. Because we know God in his Godhead, the triune nature, is perfect unity, perfect love. There's no division in the Godhead between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, There's no argumentation. It is perfect unity and perfect love. So they lived in awe, they lived in unity, and they lived daily. I love that, make that emphasis, dailiness. I don't know, is dailiness a real word? Dailiness? It doesn't sound my resident English teacher up here said, no, I don't think it. But I'm using it, dailiness. Me and George Bush, we make up words. Uh, Daily, there's this idea that it's not something we do once, it's, it's a daily need in our lives to be filled. And we'll look at that a little deeper uh, tonight, even perhaps a little more. So tonight, um, then and last of all, we looked at the, over the last two weeks, and especially at the end of last week, we looked at the book of Acts continually uses the phrase, the power of the name. It uses the name, in the name of Jesus Christ, be healed. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, be healed. Uh, Even back in the Old Testament, we see the prophets, especially Isaiah, talking about the name of God, the the holy name. And we talked about what does it mean? What is the power of the name of God? Well, I think two things are striking about the power of the name. Number one, it reminds us that we don't do anything in our power, right? If... If somebody asks for, if somebody asks me as a minister for a blessing, I don't say I bless you. I say the Lord bless you, or God bless you, because I have no power to bless them. Yeah, it's a good reminder. It's the power is all God's. Um, so, also this idea of the name it, comes, it brings to our mind the idea of the essence of one's being. The name always represents the essence of the being. And so in this case, the being is God. And his name is holy. It is above all other names. It is the name so holy that Jewish people wouldn't even pronounce it or spell it or write it. And we hear in the New Testament, Paul in his writings says that the name of Jesus, the name above all names, the name under which uh, all must be saved. 
So the idea that the name of God, the name of Jesus Christ, the name of the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the essence of his being, and in that contains the power. Uh, we're commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit, not with wine. Now, we looked at that, that scripture from Ephesians chapter 5 last week when we were together, and it, 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 Paul talks about, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So he sets up the idea of drunkenness with the contrast of being filled. And so we're gonna, we'll look a little deeper at that each week as we go a little further too, because it becomes more apparent. But tonight what I want to talk about as we begin part three is this idea of why do we need the Holy Spirit? Why do we need to talk about being spirit-filled? Isn't it enough that we're just Christians? Isn't it enough that we believe? So my question to you is, and I put it right there on the notes tonight, does everyone have the Holy Spirit? Let's think about that question a little bit. Talk out loud if you if you want to. Um, what do you think? Does everyone have the Holy Spirit? Or do only certain people have the Holy Spirit? I think everyone could, but I don't know if I think they do. Okay, so maybe everyone could, but not sure that they do. Good answer. Let's, let's explore that. Any other thoughts? Does everyone have the Holy Spirit? Maybe it, maybe not. Could be. What do you think? I don't really see how everybody could automatically just have the Holy Spirit. Um, that that wasn't. I guess like I don't know the answer because we talked about it in Sunday school. So I'll wait. <laughs> <laughs> you got a preview, huh? Okay. Uh, but I like your thoughts. Go ahead and say it. Well. In the book of Acts, they would need to lay their hands onto the people after they were baptized because they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. Aha, okay. So you've seen in Scripture demonstrated where some believers had not yet received. So my question, I, I'm, this was a trick question, okay? The trick question is, I asked it, does everyone have the Holy Spirit? But really what we have to ask, is there a difference between having and being filled? Is there a difference between the verb to have and to be filled? That's what we're really talking about. So if I simply ask the question, as I did to you, I tricked you with the question, does everyone have the Holy Spirit? My answer is yes. Everyone has the Holy Spirit. How can I say that? How can I say that? Even people that don't believe in Christ have the Holy Spirit. What, what am I talking about? Any thoughts? How is that possible, that somebody that doesn't even believe in Christ could have the Holy Spirit? I'm thinking of it in a way as they are imbued with the kind of the breath of God, kind of the life of God, and, and in that way the Holy Spirit is, has filled them in that way, or not necessarily filled them, it Aha, uh -huh. they're very good. That's exactly what I'm thinking of. What I want us to get a glimpse of is that to be human, to be alive and to be human is to have God within us in some measure, albeit a very minor speck in many people. But every human being exists by the breath of Almighty God. There's a song we sing in church sometimes that says, It's your breath in my lungs, so I pour out my praise. Remember that song? Pour out my praise to you only. It's, my, it's your breath, God, in my lungs. Human carbon, car, we're carbon, whatever carbon is, I'm not a scientist, but we're carbon whatever, you know, carbon beings, you know. Do you know what I mean? What? We have a footstep. We have a footstep. We're, we have a carbon footprint in the world. God took a lump of clay and it says he fashioned humanity out of the earth. We know that when we die, eventually we return to that earth. We ultimately, eventually, if left un untreated and everything, ultimately living matter decays because it's organic. 
Okay. You're saying that every person, even people who have never heard the scripture at all, or every atheist that chooses not to believe, has got a speck of God in them. Yes. And this is why all human life is to be sacredly honored in some fashion. This is what keeps us from being people like Hitler, who says... Did he not have a speck? He did, but he chose to believe that some races were more superior than others. I mean, there's a lot of things that keep us from being a Hitler. But my point is, we have... There's no way that we can devalue any human life, no matter how much we disagree with them, no matter how different they are, no matter how evil they are. They are human beings filled with the breath of God. They may not acknowledge that is the God's breath. They may not believe it's God's breath. But this is, this is the essence of what it means to be made in his image. It, it came. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? We are made to be human is to be, is to be different than any other created being in the world. Any other form of creation, to be human, is to be special. It's not even angelic. It's different. The scripture teaches us that the angels are kind of, you know, wondrous about humanity. Because humans are created in the image of God, the image and likeness of God. So human life is, is, is whenever anyone dies, they deserve. This was things I've learned in my funeral ministry. Whenever anyone dies, it doesn't matter if they were Buddhist, atheist, Christian, whatever. Convict, free man, it doesn't matter. They deserve someone to stand over their dead body and to say, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. They deserve that. and Their family deserves that. Because... They've now gone the way of all the world, and they are in the hands of their maker. And it's up to him what happens to them in their eternal existence, okay? But they're human. So why, why am I making this point? Because I want us to see how important it is that we be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not enough to have the Holy Spirit. We must be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Scripture teaches us this. And we're going we're gonna to look at, at some examples of that. We say in our theology, and we're not the only ones that say it, um, but I think uh, ancient theology, I think ancient Christian theology, Catholic theology, Orthodox theology uh, would agree with Wesleyan theology. Wesleyans should agree with, I should say we agree with them, that the sanctifying grace of being made holy and being made filled with the Spirit is a definite separate work of grace other than regeneration, which means to be saved. Okay, regeneration, that which brings us into right relationship with God. For our vernacular in in this, for we can just say in our vocabulary, to be saved. Okay, so the idea of being filled with the Spirit is different. Not all Christians believe in that, but that is the ancient teaching. And I'm going to show you why as we look at Scripture tonight. So, um, what is it that some people believe? Some others believe that you just, when you're saved, you have all, you have the Holy Spirit, and that's that's it. Well, yes, we do. When we're saved, we've we've already demonstrated that from our birth we have the breath of God in our lungs. But when we are saved, when we are regenerated in Christ, in faith in Christ, that is only because God has been at work preveniently. We call that the doctrine of prevenient grace. God is drawing us to faith in Him. Okay, and we, by our own free will, ascend to that. We we submit our will to His, and we say yes. And by that faith, we are regenerated in God. But in that, we have a portion of the Holy Spirit. There's no question. We couldn't have been saved without the Holy Spirit. But there is a difference between that and having been filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the idea is filled. Okay, I brought a glass of water with me tonight. Okay, not only because it was hot out and I needed it thirsty, but I made the mistake of drinking some because I was thirsty. I kind of wished I hadn't. I was I was going to bring it in here full. Okay. 
And you've seen this before. Ministers have done it. Different teachers, different people. If I filled this cup with water, at some point it would become full. It's not full now, but it would become full, right? And it would, if you just kept filling it, it would overflow, right? Okay. Now, I want to use that as an example, as a comparison to the spirit-filled life. The spirit-filled life is not just a life that gets full to the brim and stops. The spirit-filled life is one that's continually being filled and never stops. If I never pour, stop pouring water into this glass, it's just going to keep running over. And that's the beauty of life in the spirit of God. God doesn't just pour his spirit out once. He doesn't just pour his spirit out until we've got almost enough. He doesn't just pour his spirit out until we think we're full or he thinks we're full. He's going to continually pour his spirit out as long as we continually desire his filling, his infilling. I guess I could use the word as infilling. Does that make sense? So we talked at the end of last week a little bit about the idea that every single human being born ever is born with a God-shaped void. A void is a hole. It's something that needs filled. And we talked about the fact that 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 is why it is absolutely undeniable that every human seeks to worship something. Many don't know. Even in the the ancient pagan world, one of the first things they did was seek something to worship. Okay? Ever, ever, Ever wonder about the real ancient patriarchs of the book of Genesis? Let's go all the way back. You know, other than Adam, who who was created in the presence of God, but once you take him out of the garden, and he's no longer in that unique state, other than him and Eve, how did these other people even know God existed? And, And why did they start thinking to, I mean, it says that they responded to God, and they, you know, they they heard God. You know, Cain heard God talking to him, you know? Somehow they recognize that void. They recognize that void. It's intrinsic. It's innate, I guess is the word. We're born with it because, because, it's, because something's missing. And what's missing? What's missing is the presence, that union, that presence of the Holy Spirit that was in paradise. Because now we have this shadow called sin, this wall of separation called sin. And we're still aware of God, We're aware of a need for God. And so these people are looking to fill that void. And that's why people, even atheists who say, I don't believe in God, if you look and study their life psychologically, they're worshiping something. They may be worshiping themselves. They may be worshiping their job. They may be worshiping drugs, sex, all kinds. People are always trying to find something to fill and fit a need. It's a psychological truth. What? That's right. Everyone has a God. So this is why in the ancient world they say there's no such thing as atheists. It's a fascinating thing to look back into the ancient world and study uh, anthropology, the study of humanity. There were no atheists. Everyone had a God. Some, maybe it was a rock or a tree or the sun or the moon, but everyone, every people group on the face of the earth had a God. Atheism is a phenomena of the modern world. Now, I can't tell you exactly when that started, but more modern world. Now, I want you to hear something that uh, Dr. Richard Taylor, who was one of our deceased a few years ago, one of our Nazarene theologians, he wrote this about this idea of filling the void, filling the void. And I, I wanted to read this last week, but then ran out of time. In using that comparison between being filled with wine and fill or filled with the Holy Spirit. In the Ephesian chapter, fifth chapter, Paul uses this idea of being filled. Don't be filled with wine. And wine is like a metaphor for everything else but God, uh, the pleasures of the world, anything else but God. Don't be filled with everything else. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Taylor brings out this thought. He says, um, 
the ways the ways symbolized by wine are not the only ways men and women try to fill the void. In other words, when we think of the wine, we think of something that is able to intoxicate us, something that could change us uh, personal, personality-wise. So we can compare that to things like drugs or, or uh, things that might, uh, pursuit of money, uh, pursuit of power, things that have the ability to make us worse as a being, not better as a being. But he makes this good point. He says, the ways symbolized by wine are not the only ways men and women try to fill that void. Other ways may actually be wholesome and legitimate ways, even constructive in and of themselves, such as um, the solution of problems, maybe the pursuit of a scientific endeavor, a pursuit of curing cancer. These are wholesome, good pursuits. But if it becomes our only way of filling that void, then it becomes unhealthy to us, you see. So everything, that metaphor that Paul is using is, is really an all-inclusive one. Uh, and then he goes on to say, um, he says, like, uh, like wine, they are addictive and monopolizing. Anything can become addictive and monopolizing of all of our time, if we allow it to, if we, if we go full. I'm going to use a comparison a little later on in the class. If we go completely in, uh, like I'm going to use about God. So even love and attention to your family. Absolutely. It can be overdone. It can be, overdone. It can, it can be taken to an unhealthy extreme. Boy, that, that's a psychologist's nightmare, isn't it? You mean, talk about, wow. So he, here's something I, w- I want to give you that he said. In this way, even the so-called finer things, like family, that would be a finer thing. Even the so-called finer things can become destructive in the end, for one's deepest hungers are stifled. Even great music can be an emotional substitute for inner the inner satisfaction of knowing God. These substitutes create within the soul a fixation on the lesser. They drug the soul into accepting echoes for reality until the soul ceases to know they are mere shadows. By playing an out-of-tune instrument, we become conditioned to the out-of-tuneness and then forget that there is a tone of trueness. I like that thought. Even though these things are, some of them may be wholesome and good, nothing satisfies like God. There is only one thing that will fill. And that's why Blaise Pascal said it's a God-shaped void. Only God will fill it. So, why is being filled to the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, a second or other work of grace and how is that accomplished? I want to talk about that tonight with you. Uh, we, there's a lot we could say, more than we could do in the confines of this class. But, but let's look at some biblical examples. So if you have your Bibles and you want to, you can turn to the book of Acts. And we're going to look at the book of Acts. In, we're going to look at four different episodes or accounts, if you will, of fillings with the Holy Spirit. The first one, the obvious one that we began our study with in the Spirit-Filled Life class is the, the account of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. When it says that they were all together in one accord, and we know that they had been there 10 days, waiting and praying, being obedient to Christ who had told them to just go and wait, they didn't know how long it would take. He didn't tell them how long it would take. But we know that on the 10th day, the Holy Spirit came. It said there was a mighty rushing wind. There appeared as in the room tongues of fire that separated and alighted upon each of them uh, upon their heads. And they began to speak with other tongues. And that's a phenomenal account, a phenomenal that we've heard many times. But what I want to ask in the context of tonight is, who were these people? These 120 people, who were they? Were they just regular people from uh, Jerusalem, Jews? Well, yeah, we could say they're Jews. Were they regular people? Yeah, we could say they're regular people. But there's an identity. They're all followers of Jesus Christ. They're already saved. 
is the point I want to make. These are Christians that are already saved. If the end of the world had come in God's providence, they wouldn't have had to worry about their eternal state. So why'd they need to be filled? Because it was only in the power and filling of the Holy Spirit that the mission of the gospel could and would be carried out. So we begin to see that, like the cup of water that just keeps flowing when it's filled, they begin to overflow. Their, their account it fills out into the streets. We, I can't even imagine what it would have been like to be there and to think about hearing all these tongues and, and, and seeing this phenomena and these some of them very uneducated people identified that way by Scripture itself. And, and so much so that uh, 120 people doing this, it, it's catching the attention of people out in the streets. And people out in the streets. So it's spilling over into the streets. And then out in the streets, it, people are starting to make fun of them. People are starting to say, what? There's a drunken mob here, you know. And, I mean, 120 people acting like they're drunk is a mob. And so Peter, in his overflowing fullness now, he rises in occasion, goes out into the streets and starts preaching to them. Amazing. And... And he preaches to them about their need to be what? To be converted. As he preaches to them, he gives them the gospel message. This same Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, he says, is God, whom God resurrected from the dead, uh, is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. And, And it says the people were cut to the quick. It says they were, what shall we do? When they realized the conviction of the Holy Spirit was upon them, they didn't know that's what it was. They just felt convicted. They said, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. Those are the exact words of Peter. Repent, Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We know that it tells us 3,000 people were baptized, added to the church that day. That's an amazing feat. Um, But it could be done pretty easily. I mean, they could all go down to the river or somewhere and start baptizing people, and there's 120 filled. We don't know who, you know... uh, did all the baptizing, clearly the apostles did, but uh, but it's a phenomenal account, and it shows that these, the Peter, his first command is that it's not enough to just be converted. It's not enough. You need the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, you need the gift of, God's going to give it to you. Now, he gives it to them in a very small initial way, as we talked about. You receive a, a gift of the Holy Spirit. You do receive one when you're saved. It's only by the Holy Spirit that that happens within us. But isn't there more? Isn't there more that we need? They need to be filled. So let's keep following this on. If we go over to, I think it's Acts chapter 9, we've seen a lot of happen, and this isn't a book, this isn't a class on the survey of Acts, but, but by the time we get to Acts chapter 9, we have seen in uh, chapter Seven, we saw uh, Stephen, the great first deacon, become the first Christian martyr. And we see in chat that this great man named Saul of Tarsus was standing there and consenting to his death. And we see as chapter 8 begins, that word, now Saul was consenting to his death, death. And at that time, it tells us a great persecution arose against the church. So there is already now an identifiable group called the church. Okay, and it's obviously more than 3,000 strong by now. Okay, 3,000 was just the first day. And, and we're still in Jerusalem, okay? So it's thousands upon thousands sweeping the city of Jerusalem. Don't know how many. But in this persecution that came up, it says that, that uh, many were spread out. They were scattered throughout the different regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles, the 12, or the 11 now, stayed in Jerusalem. And these others, like the deacons, we start reading about 
we see the story of Philip in this next chapter, who he gets uh, on told by the Holy Spirit to go down to uh, towards Gaza, and there he meets the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip is a deacon, but he's out there spreading the gospel. Because, why? Because he is filled with the Holy Spirit. He was there. He was part of the church. Um, but what I really want to draw you to is this idea that there's a church in Samaria. In verse 4, we start reading, And therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria. I'm on Acts chapter 8, verse 4. After this, Saul had started this great persecution, and this great persecution arose, and they've all been scattered, except the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. It says here in verse 4, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So these, these that are scattered are the spirit-filled Christians. And it says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Now Samaria, we know, is within the confines of what we call Israel today. It's one of the ancient capitals of the country. And it was where people that were considered half-breeds. The Jews did not like the Samaritans. They felt they had been inbred. And, and they were, when Jews had been taken captive up in the Assyrian captivity, they were mixed marriages, and they weren't a pure, to the Jews, they weren't a pure bloodline, and that they kind of corrupted the faith, the Jews thought, so they, they didn't have everything just right, and they didn't like him at all. So here he is in the capital of Samaria, preaching to them, and it says, and the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, Many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. This is an amazing account of the life of a spirit-filled follower of Christ, obeying the Holy Spirit and taking the gospel out into the streets, taking the ministry out into the streets. Now, it talks about this certain man named Simon who was a sorcerer who saw this power and, and wanted to buy it. Uh, and we don't have time for that whole story, but... Philip, of course, said, uh, uh, no, you can't buy this. <laughs> uh, Simon himself, in verse 13, it says, uh, Simon himself also believed, and he was baptized, and he continued with Philip, and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. And uh, it's a little bit later that he offers to buy it. Um, but this sorcerer, this guy who had had a skeptical past, is following Philip around. And so here we have, in verse 14, a very interesting account. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, okay, in other words, they'd received the gospel. They'd received the message of the gospel and they were being saved. That's what it means by they'd heard the word of God. Then they sent, they, meaning the apostles back in Jerusalem, sent Peter and John to them. So they're sending the head guys out. Peter and John are going out to see what's going on and to make sure things are happening well. And it says when they get there, um, who when they had come down to Samaria, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So now we see something very plainly. Here's a bunch of people that have responded in a town that have responded to the gospel, but yet they're still lacking. They're believers. They've already submitted their, their faith. They believe. They've probably, uh, you know, come to the point where it's, uh, they've, they've, even, they've even been baptized. But yet there's something they need. It says, Peter and John say to them, uh, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet, verse 16, very important, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, that's a good baptism. That's Christian baptism. It was, I'm sure, done in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The reason the scripture says in the name of Jesus is because it's trying to differentiate, especially in the book of Acts, where there are other times it will say, and we'll see tonight as we go through some scriptures, where it says in the, we had received John's baptism. Remember John the Baptist? So John's baptism was not the same as Jesus' baptism, meaning baptism in the name of Jesus, or as Jesus himself said, to be baptized in the name of the Father. We knew that the apostles were sent out in the Great Commission, 
baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's why we have a triune a formula for baptism. So they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then verse 17, it says, Then they laid hands on them, and they, what? Receive the Holy Spirit. Wow. This is a second definite work of grace. Very second definite work of grace. So we must ask the question, why did they need it? Why wasn't it enough for them to just be, well, they got the gospel. Peter and John had to go all the way from Jerusalem to Samaria for them to receive the Holy Spirit. What's up with that? Well, that's a lot of trouble. Peter and John can't go everywhere. You know, but it was important. It was important that they go. Because receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, being, as he says, they receive the Holy Spirit, as we're going to hear it called in just a little bit, being filled with the Spirit. This is so important. We're going to see it demonstrated a little more. Now, it's after that, <laughs> this is a marvelous thing, okay? Simon, who had saw Philip doing these amazing things, uh, follows and gets baptized and supposedly is a believer. Then it says, when Simon saw this, through the laying, hand of, laying on of hands of the apostles, the Holy Spirit was given. He offered them money. Okay, this is where Simon offers money. Give me this power also that anyone whom I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. And, of course, Peter says, your money perish with you. You can't buy the power of the Holy Spirit, of course. Simon, in verse 24, you know, pray to the Lord for me that none of these things happen to me. You know, Peter told him, you're going to perish with it. You're lost. Repent of this wicked thought of buying the power of God. Um, And so it says in verse 25, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, that means they, meaning Peter and John, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans as they went back along the way. Why I bring that account up tonight after the account of Pentecost is that it shows us clearly that people can become Christians without being filled with the Spirit. They need, and and it was important that John and Peter, it was so important that they went down there to lay hands on them because they needed. Now, it begs the question, Philip was already there and Philip's a deacon, why doesn't Philip just lay hands on them? Doesn't that beg that question? I think it historically does. I think it's because the church, at least Peter and John understood at this point, and we see historically the church understanding after that, that there is something to this laying on of hands. And it was especially designated to the apostles. We would say, as the historic church has said, and to their successors, that this wasn't something that, if the laying on of hands is important, it wasn't something that should have just stopped in the first century. It's good for everyone until Christ returns. This is the gift everyone is invited to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's go a little further here, and let's look at another one. Let's look at the conversion of Paul. In, in chapter 9, this Paul, who was Saul, who was consenting to the death of all of these Christians, and really it says going house to house and hunting them down, dragging them off to prison. It says that, of course, while he was on the road to Damascus, he was in search of Christians uh, to find them, and he had the authority of the temple back in Jerusalem with him, it said, as we know the story, he was struck by a light and a vision of Jesus Christ. And we start reading that um, in in chapter 9. And we don't have time to read the whole chapter, but I do want to give you some of it. I want you to, to feel a little bit of it here. And says, as he, verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I think it's very important that we stop right there and make a note. Was Saul or Paul persecuting Jesus by persecuting Christians? Absolutely. See, it's important that we understand if you persecute Christians, you persecute Christ. 
Jesus said, you know, in that you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. Why? Because there's a solidarity in humanity with Christ. Because all human, I mean, these are Christians in his spirit, okay? Um, so, and the Lord said to him, well, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do in verse 6? And then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And it says, and the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. And then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. That begs the point that he had previously saw someone. Okay? We don't know exactly what his vision was. I'm, I'm personally, my theology is maybe it was like on the Mount of Transfiguration, that bright light. The, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he is now in heaven, is the uncreated light from beginning of all create before all creation. And to see him would to be to see the uncreated light. And, you know, all you could do is fall down in his presence. You know, Saul called him Lord. Didn't even know who he was. We called him Lord. I'm sure he had an awesome experience. So um, it says, then his eyes, he could not see anything. He was blinded. So Saul arose from the ground. His eyes were open. He saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and when, and he was three days without sight. So somewhere between seeing the bright light and getting to there, he was blinded. And he spent three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank, it says. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Boy, there's so much in there. We could teach hours on that passage. Okay. But what I want to what I want to get for you is this idea that naturally Ananias is, has fear. Lord, you sure you want me to go? This guy. You know, he's a pretty mean guy. Jesus assured, yeah, he kills people and, and, and the temple's behind him. Jesus says, it's okay. He's praying. I'm Jesus. The Lord Jesus assures Ananias it's going to be okay. I'm going to use him. He's going to be my man. He's going to be my witness. And and so Ananias does go. Uh, I, I think it's, and it says here, and Ananias went his way and he entered the house, verse 17, And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. Now, Let's, let's think through a couple of things here. How long was he without his sight? How is he healed? By the laying on of hands. Ananias, who's not an apostle, he's just a Christian, but God has instructed him to go and lay hands. Why was it important that he lay hands? There's something so important about that. It's so beautiful. Some, when people come for anointing at the church and for healing... Uh, you know, we, we take oil and we touch them with our hand and we bless them and we, we, we ask the Lord's blessing on them and anoint them. Uh, usually, at least I do, and most ministers in the, in the form of a cross. In the name, there we come back to last week's lesson about the power of the name. In the name of Jesus, be healed. And that's what Ananias is doing here. He's laying hands. He's physically touching him. It's important for us to understand The Christian faith is a faith of feeling. It is a faith to be touched. It's a faith to be lived. It's not just an education. There's a word I'm searching for that I don't have. 
it's not just a, an edified type of uh, intellectual faith. Okay, it's not, that's one of the great heresies, Gnosticism. Oh, it's about a secret knowledge. That's what the Gnostics said. No, this is real and we can touch it. Jesus is real and he touches us through the touch of others. I think that's an important point to be made here. Now, the last point that I want to make is that Jesus was connecting his being laid hands and touched with being filled with the Spirit. Look at the very words. It says, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the Apostle Paul's Pentecost. The Apostle Paul, at the hands of Ananias, is healed, restored, and filled with the Holy Spirit. And the process is reversed. And the, yes, thank you for noticing that. I was wondering if somebody would notice it. The process is reversed. And then it says he did what? He was baptized. Now, if you're already filled with the Spirit, and you, God's already told you he's got a great work for you to do, why was it important for him to go ahead and get baptized? He's already a believer. He's already filled with the Spirit. But it was important, and I think it's important for us to know. This is why I, I just cringe when churches today do not teach the importance of baptism. Baptism is a sacrament. It is a filling of grace. It is a part of God's salvific process. Okay? It's not void of, of grace. It's not just a remembrance. It's not just a public testimony. It's all of those things, but it's more. It's important. It's so important that even the Apostle Paul couldn't get away, having already been filled without. By the way, I'm sure Ananias said, well, Paul, you've got to be baptized. Because no one gets into the faith of Jesus Christ without being baptized. I mean, there's so much we could build theologically about this. That sometimes the evangelical world of the modern world tends to de-emphasize because we're so filled with zeal to get people saved. We miss the sacramental nature sometimes. And that's not good because it's not scriptural. Um, so I wanted you to see that. So it's not so much that the order was the important thing. Now, the order is natural, Okay salvation, and then filling. In Paul's case, it's a special order. And we're going to see it happen again here in just a minute. But that doesn't mean it happens for everybody that way. We know that as we study the scriptures and the study of the ancient church, this, this, the natural course is that people hear the gospel, they are converted, they are baptized, as Peter said, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And we know because everywhere these apostles went, they went and laid hands on them. It wasn't enough that just the giving of the Holy Spirit at baptism wasn't enough. They needed the filling. And this is a class where we're talking about being filled. What is that difference? Okay, They needed the filling. The Samaritans needed it, even though they'd been baptized in Jesus' name. Paul needed it. Now we see, we're going to look at uh, our last example is in the very next chapter. Uh, actually, it's the same chapter, it's just further on. Uh, it is the, the conversion, or the Pentecost, rather, of the Gentiles in Caesarea. So let's look at that account here. Um, it tells us if we go a little further on, uh, it's wonderful. Read, if you haven't read the book of Acts, read all about Saul afterwards. I love how it says in verse 20, immediately he began preaching about Christ in the synagogues. Isn't that beautiful? He just immediately, his passion took him right into the synagogues to tell his fellow Jews about Jesus Christ. Um, and it says they were all amazed. Um, and it says Saul just increased all the more in strength. And he confounded the Jews who were in Damascus. Uh, so, so much so that they even plotted to kill him. And they had to let him out of the city in secret through a basket through the wall. But then it says he came to Jerusalem. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, I, I love this. When it says he came to Jerusalem, they were skeptical of him. You know, Paul, Saul's, Saul's name was a scary name. I mean, he, was, he had a reputation. And it says they were afraid of him, didn't want to believe that he was really a disciple. They saw this as the ultimate in trickery. Oh, you're going to pretend to be one of us? Find out where we have our meetings, and then you're going to take us all captive. That's what they were thinking. But... It says Barnabas. Barnabas took him and brought him into the apostles. 
Barnabas, uh, truly a, a wonderful apostle there. He declared to them how he had seen the Lord. So Paul, be, I mean Saul, Paul begins to tell his story to the brethren, to the apostles, the eleven apostles there. And it says in verse 29, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, uh, but they attempted to kill him. Hellenists, as you know, are Greek Jews, okay, Greek Jews. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches, it says in verse 31, throughout all of Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. So now that Paul's converted, there is peace. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplying. That's a beautiful phrase. Walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church was multiplied. Verse 32, now it came to pass as Peter went through the parts of the country, all parts of the country, that he also came to the saints who dwelt in, in Lydda or Lydda. There he found a certain man, whom he, Aeneas, whom he healed. He did a wonderful miracle there. And it says, then at Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, also called Dorcas, who we know that story. I don't have time to go through all of this with you, but I'm just letting you kind of flow through with me. Dorcas ends up, Paul is apparently a long-winded preacher, and, and uh, all of the, it says then, uh, there was... Uh, they heard that Peter was there, and they sent two men imploring him not to delay in coming there. Uh, it said, verse 37, but it happened in those days that when she became sick, she died. And when they had washed her hair, they laid her in an upper room. And Saul, and since Lydia was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. And Peter arose and went with them. And when he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the windows stood by him, weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had, and while she was with them. And Peter, but Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes. So here the apostle Peter raises Tabitha from the dead. Truly the greatest miracle uh, of all. Um, and again, his word spreads. It becomes, spreads all throughout Joppa. Now, in verse chapter 10, it's very important. It tells us there's a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius. He's a centurion. That tells us he's a Roman soldier, a commander in the Roman regiment. And he's a devout man who feared God. So he's a Roman. He's uh, a Gentile, but he has become a believer in the God of Abraham and the Jewish God. And he even gives alms, it says. And it says that uh, he prayed to God always. And it says about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly a vision of an angel coming to him and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed it, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter, for he is staying there with Simon the Tanner. And so he brings him, he goes down, sends the people and the next day, Peter's actually having a vision, and Peter gets this vision we've heard about where God shows him all these unclean animals in the sheet three different times and tells him that they're now clean and you can arise and eat. And this is God's way of showing the apostles through Peter that Gentiles are, are clean too, and the Gentiles deserve, deserve the gospel and don't call anyone unclean. And so Peter then, about that time, the men from Cornelius come, and they want him to come back with them. And so, uh, verse 21, Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius. And uh, it says that uh, on the next day, Peter went away with them and some of the other brethren from Joppa and went with them to preach to the Gentiles in Caesarea. Now, um, are we doing on time? Boy, we're almost out of time. That's, that's, I'm going to speed up here a little bit. Peter is preaching, um, and Cornelius is testifying about what had happened. And then Peter, in verse 34, begins to preach and such. He says, he opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. 
Boy, if you're, we don't have time to go into it tonight, but just circle that line, underline where it says, everyone who fears him and works righteousness. That's huge. For Theologically, that's huge. It, it's not enough to just fear God. It's not enough to believe we have to do something righteous in our life. Okay? We're not, doesn't earn our salvation, but it is the proof of our salvation. So I just throw that out there. Okay, going on. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace throughout Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And to him all the prophets witness this. And it is through his name, there's that name again, Whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. And so while Peter is preaching, and you know, Peter, obviously, it wouldn't have been fun to hear him preach, the passion he must have had. But while he is preaching, it says, verse 44, very important, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision, that would be the Jews, who were with him, who believed, were astonished. They were astonished because it says here the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard. That would be the Gentiles. And as many as came with Peter, and follow that thought here for a minute, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, and as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And then they asked him to stay for a few days. Four different accounts of Pentecost. The original day, the 120 in the upper room. St. Paul's Pentecost at the hands of the disciple, the follower of Christ, Ananias, the Samaritans, through the ministry of uh, Peter and John, who have gone up there through the ministry of Philip, and the Gentiles. All of these happen in a slightly different way. You see the difference in all of these accounts? But there's a couple of things that are all similar. Um, what are some of the differences? that you notice in these accounts? Well, for the final account, it said the Holy, while he was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard the word. So yes. it happened then and there while he was speaking and not necessarily with the hands. Right. So now we see another kind of an, uh, a difference, an aberration. It's, it's slightly different, isn't it? Okay. The gift of the Holy Spirit cannot be reduced. This is what I take from that. The gift of the Holy Spirit cannot be reduced to a formula. The whole, Jesus said in the third chapter of John, you, the, the Holy Spirit moves wherever it will. The wind moves where it will. Okay. It cannot be reduced to a formula. The Holy Spirit, he cannot be reduced to a formula. He will go and he will minister however he will. This is why Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And if we're not part of the building, he'll build without us. But he will build. Um, but Peter, again, similar to the uh, earlier one of the Samaritans, what does Peter say that they should do? When he realizes they've all been filled with the Spirit, what does he say they should do? Can anyone forbid they be baptized? They need to be baptized. How important is baptism? in this process. It's so important that even people that have already been filled, they're not going to miss out on it. Okay? 
So what is this filling? What what truly is this? The next time we meet, we're going to look at some. We're going to look at. We're going to look at what this filling really looks like. I've I've spent a few weeks trying to establish some order and some facts for you. That this is the power of God. It is in the name of God, the name of Christ. It is something for everyone. It is something that is different from salvation. It is a another, a separate work of grace, if you will. We call it a second blessing sometimes, a second work of grace. Um, but it is, it's, we've been established some facts for you. There's no way to say that being entirely filled with the Holy Spirit is not a, another work of grace. Now, not scripturally anyway, that, that I can find. So, but what does it really look like? Uh, what, what their, where do their lives go from here? What, is, what does it look like? How, how do they begin? We've looked at a few of the apostles. So we're going to look a little, uh, little more as we branch out in next week. Now, again, I, we will not be able to meet next week because it falls at the 4th of July holiday time. It's actually only the 3rd on Wednesday, but for some reason. Everybody gets started early, I guess. I think it's legal to shoot fireworks on the 3rd, I guess. But the holiday always starts early and goes late. So we won't meet next week, but we'll be back again the next week after that. Um, oh, wait a second. Is that the 10th? We're going to have to miss two weeks. Sorry about that. I have a vacation planned. Thank you for correcting me on that. So the following week, this is what I hate about summer. I love teaching and I hate all these stop and starts. So hang in there. That's why they're on podcast. While we're off, you can go back and listen to the podcasts and catch up and make sure you're up to date. When we get back together, we will begin talking about this idea of being filled. We've established how important it is. We've established that it sometimes is, and importantly, by the laying on of hands, it was clearly important. That is a normative pattern that the early church adopted. But even God isn't limited to just a formula. So um, any last thoughts or questions? I ran you just a couple of minutes uh, long tonight. Any thoughts, questions, comments? I think this is this was good for me to go through how it's not a formula because just last night, Rand and I were talking about how the Orthodox will baptize, give communion, and lay hands on the child all at once, whereas... Catholicism, they are baptized and then wait several years and then for the baptism for the communion then of the Holy Spirit then you know confirmation mm-hmm. in a different order than the Orthodox and farly spaced out you know right for um, several years but and I I was probably being a little harder on the Catholic way <laughs> I probably should and was deciding towards Orthodox but this is this was good. To see that it's not about the formula. Yeah. And we cannot. It doesn't mean we ignore formulas because there are normative things, okay, but it, it, we don't worship the formula either. Um, you know, we don't ignore the formula of the Trinity because it's the words of Jesus baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are some Christians that do. There are some Christians that ignore that and say, nope, it's a, Peter said baptized in the name of Jesus, that's what we're going to do. But uh, I think it's really cool that you and Miranda have that conversation that you're having theological conversations. So thanks for sharing that. Any other thoughts, questions, comments? Well, let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for the gift of your word, the word, the holy word of scripture that we can look at. And it's been preserved through all of these millennia, actually. And what a gift it is that there is a record there is truth to be perceived and studied. And so thank you for our time tonight as we've opened our hearts and minds to hear what your spirit would say, not what I would say. So as always, I pray tonight that as we leave this place, you would, by the power of your spirit and in the holy name of Jesus, that you would uh, bring to our hearts and minds your truth, not what I taught. And anything I said that's wrong sometimes might have been confused or misstated. Please uh, cover over that, Father, and let your truth reign supreme in our hearts and minds. 
guide and direct us now. We offer this time to you in the strong name of our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, who lives with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever and unto ages of ages. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.